Welcome to Colorado State University's new podcast, The Audit, where host Stacy Nick talks with CSU faculty about topics ranging from their latest research to current events. A train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, leads to the dumping of 100,000 gallons of hazardous chemicals and forces the evacuation of the small working class community. Lead and other contaminants are discovered in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, where more than 40% of people live below the poverty level. It takes more than seven years to replace the lead pipes and leads residents to develop a deep distrust in the city's water safety. An 85-mile stretch along the Mississippi River is lined with so many oil refineries and petrochemical plants that it's nicknamed Cancer Alley because its residents, who are predominantly black, are 50 times more likely to develop cancer. When people typically think of environmental injustice, they often only think of these kinds of big headline-grabbing events. But according to Stephanie Malin, associate sociology professor and co-founder of Colorado State University's Center for Environmental Justice, the issues of access and inequality are far more ubiquitous. Today, I'm talking with Malin about the center's research into cases of environmental injustice, what impact a renewed focus from the current political administration could have, and how we as individuals can turn climate grief and fatigue into hope and action. The Center for Environmental Justice began in 2020. Tell me a little bit about what the goal is with that program. Environmental justice is, it's always been important, but it's kind of the zeitgeist moment for environmental justice in a lot of ways. It's almost hard to miss the environmental injustices going on around us, but also all of the exciting movement and opportunity to build many things that are better, build better systems. And so the goal of the Center for Environmental Justice is to be a conduit for that. At a land-grant university, those of us, I'm a co-director of the center now, and one of our central goals is to make sure that we are creating space across multiple different kinds of communities to work for environmental justice. So we work in research, in teaching, and especially in community engagement and outreach. We're trying to build some active research platforms for folks at CSU that are working in areas of environmental justice, but also working with folks who are already doing that in a lot of their own ways and figuring out ways to translate that research to community so that it's as useful for people as possible. We're building curriculums at the undergraduate and graduate level around environmental justice. We are developing a graduate certificate in environmental justice justice. And so our center is very invested in kind of looking at these problems we face head on of environmental and climate injustice and trying to create space where as a land grant, we're able to interact with and bring together folks that are working here on campus, but most importantly, connect them with community. Our goal is to really become a source of support for EJ priority areas. So EJ is a a short term for environmental justice. And environmental justice activists in Colorado have really taught me and have taught others that that EJ priority area term is, is really useful. And that means spaces that have been impacted by this kind of historical and ongoing set of inequities, right? Dealing with um, an overabundance of pollution and the health problems that might emerge from that, for example, but really being a conduit for those spaces. So we are trying to apply for internal and external grants to situate ourselves so that we can be useful for folks who are dealing with environmental justice issues. Now, your work uh, as a sociologist focuses both on looking at communities that have these types of environmental injustices occurring, also in communities where new systems are being put in place to undo some of this harm or even prevent it. And I wonder, during your career, how are you seeing things change or are you seeing things change? What I've seen kind of changing is the 
awareness of environmental justice, it's been strong in many of these communities for a long time. So it's continuously inspiring to me and also edifying that when I go into these places that have these experiences and people invite me in as a as a researcher, I do a lot of ethnography, I spend a lot of time with people and in these communities, they know what's going on and they've known what's going on for a long time. And often these community organizations and groups are the most savvy researchers I've ever met. But I think what's encouraging to me is that what they know and what they're learning has now become a bit more, I don't want to say mainstream, but but we're seeing federal funding for this. We're seeing, and unfortunately, that can kind of be really dictated by the federal administration that's in power at the time. We've seen, for example, the EPA budget fluctuate wildly in the last 40 years, right? But I think it's encouraging that not only is there more awareness of this, but the funding is also being funneled towards the communities and the spaces that actually need it, rather than going to perhaps state agencies and kind of getting lost there. I mean, it's going there as well and being used in good ways. But I think there's much more attention on people on the ground, know what they're doing. They know how to regenerate their communities better than anyone else. And so they deserve the, those kinds of resources, right? And and kind of the movement in that direction. It's slow going, but I've been so inspired by the uh, the hopeful things that I see on the ground. And I had a book come out in April with Megan Coleman. She's a state senator and a sociologist on the East Coast. And she she and I were just constantly encountering students that would hit eco-grief or a feeling of paralysis by about halfway through the semester because climate crisis and all the other, just the ecological crises, not to mention the economic crises that we face, are daunting. And we wanted to highlight in this book, Building Something Better tries to do that, where we we focus on the spaces where all this amazing distributive and regenerative alternative kind of systems are being built from small communities to organizations. There's a lot going on. And so the infiltration of that, I think, has also been very different. The idea that we can build a very different political and economic system in a place like the U.S. and at smaller and larger scales. I even see that awareness and that kind of motivation to do that in my students much more so in the last four or five years than I did. So I think there is, for all of the paralysis we can feel, I think in terms of these big capitalist systems or these big extractive systems, climate crisis, it's daunting and it needs a lot of work. But there's so much already going on that resists that in really productive, community-centered, actively hopeful sort of ways. And that's been really edifying and gratifying to see. You were talking about that idea of eco-grief. And I wonder, how can people who, who may feel pretty hopeless right now about a lot of things regarding the environment, how can they find hope? When, when the problem is so big and so daunting and so historical, mm-hmm. how do you find that hope? That's, that's a huge question. That's a wonderful <laughs> question. Um, and I think that I'm still, I'm still very much learning this. And I think a lot of folks are too. And I'm designing a course around this for students at CSU as well. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And, it, and it's not about suppressing or burying the feelings of paralysis or grief, right? That really the sadness, often the feelings of shame and complicity that can come along with being embedded in a system where many of us, all of us have to use petroleum products at some phase of our lives, if even if, you know, it's in the clothing or the cosmetics that we wear, because of the lack of bigger systems to plug into, like public transportation that might be affordable and accessible and actually get us from maybe Fort Collins to Denver, for example, right? But it's meeting people where they stand is what I found in terms of just understanding where that grief and paralysis comes from. And I, as a sociologist, tend to think about things in a multi-level or multi-scalar sort of way. So 
we tend to process things a lot on the individual level, especially in the United States, where we've been socialized to think of ourselves as individuals. And particularly since about the 1980s, right, with neoliberal ideology and policies really becoming hegemonic in places like the U.S., we're so socialized to think everything is individual level, right? If you're not doing well, if you're unemployed, if you have some economic hardship, that is all your fault. And the only solution to that problem is what you can do for yourself. And I'm bringing this up because that really maps onto some of the narratives we have for how you might deal with something like climate crisis or the eco grief that we might feel more broadly. And self-care has kind of become this buzzword, right, in terms of, well, just take time to take care of yourself. But it's such an individualized and, in my opinion, counterproductive kind of response. Like, of course, we want to be taking care of ourselves. But even on the individual level, it's about cultivating mindfulness, right? And right. a mud mask in a bath is not going to solve the <laughs> climate crisis. So, yeah. Right. And it might... It might make you feel better for a little while, but it's also at the root of what we what a lot of research shows us is that what makes individuals feel better is feeling like they're part of a collective. So even though the the mud mask in the bath might feel really good, it's not going to connect you with something bigger than yourself that we know from a lot of research. And, and just I think you can think about close your eyes and think about your own experience, right? When we feel connected to something bigger than ourselves, when we feel awe, right? There's a lot of work on happiness that that points to awe as being a really important component of how we continue to feel happy, even in the face of grief. It's that connection to the collective that that really inspires that. Beyond that, though, it's it's a little bit of a trick. When we look at big oil and other large fossil fuel and industrial interests that have a vested interest in business as usual, climate denialism was kind of the first strategy to halt action in the direction of maybe renewable energy, reducing or getting rid of fossil fuels, et cetera. And climate denialism was essentially the narrative that climate change isn't happening, or if it is, it's not human cost, right? That's not really as convincing anymore, even though it worked really well for a while, because it's pretty evident the climate crisis is happening, even to skeptics. And you see polls moving in that direction. So the new goal is complicity, right? Preying on complicity and this idea of inducing feelings of complicity in people to kind of paralyze their action is why BP helped develop the carbon footprints, right? To individualize our sense of what's going on. So it's that understanding of mindfulness at the individual level, having tools like meditation and mindfulness techniques to get us to the point where we feel taken care of and like we can function as individuals because it's a very real problem that a lot of us feel paralyzed. We just stop in the face of the daunting challenges we face. Totally understandable. I feel that on a regular basis. I know most folks do. But then the step is understanding the systems and structures in place that have created these issues and then how to build different systems and how to plug into those at different scales. So Ayanna Johnson has developed a really cool climate Venn diagram that's all about what brings you joy, what skills do you have, how do those two things intersect, and then what needs doing. And in the middle of that, you can find your climate action, right, by thinking about that. But it's an excellent way of connecting your own individual passions and joys and skills to the broader collective and what needs to be done and figuring out how to plug into that. Through the Center for Environmental Justice, increasingly, we will be trying to point people in directions of like, in Fort Collins, in the state, how can you plug in? So it's definitely that multi-scalar approach that doesn't stop with the individual, but almost demands going to the collective. You're working with some community organizations uh, like the Latinx Health Equity Nonprofit Cultivando uh, in Denver and Commerce City, as well as the Suncor Oil Refinery area. 
tell me a little bit about what you're doing there. This has been a deeply community-led, community-based project, and that's the work that I typically do, but this has been an incredible example in that direction. Culti Vondo and other community organizers around Commerce City, there are so many groups, I, I won't name them because I don't want to leave anyone out, but they were working primarily with Culti Vondo on the study. They invited me on as one of the social scientists that's leading the social science component of the study. Folks like Detlev Helmig and other air quality researchers have been doing mobile and in-place air monitoring around the Suncor facility for over a year now, I believe, and they will be talking about their results in, in terms terms of being able to do monitoring that is much more scattered in terms of where they're able to get measurements. And they're also taking measurements in much more nuanced ways than you might see reported by the EPA, which might be averages of benzene or averages of methane over a week or a month or even a year. What we're seeing in our project and from the air quality researchers on it is that focus on when do we see spikes and, and that more nuanced kind of moment by moment kind of monitoring scattered around that area. What we're looking at and the social science component that I'm leading with Ramona Beltran from University of Denver is looking at what what is it like to live or work near the Suncor facility. So the Suncor facility is the only oil refinery in Colorado. It's one of the state's largest polluters, if not the largest polluter. And it's currently partially shut down because of some accidents and fires that happened just before Christmas. So it's been around for decades and it, it deeply impacts environmental justice and health issues for folks living, especially right around the facility, which I want to mention too, Commerce City and the GES areas. It's one of the most polluted zip codes, if not the most in the U.S. because of kind of these layered extractive sites, but also sites of industrial contamination. The Suncor facility is just one of them. There's also I-70 going right through, kind of a legacy of those interstate policies I was talking about. Um, so decades of policies and sightings of different facilities that have led to these layered environmental injustices that we see. But the Suncor facility, folks have observed in a few years ago, there was a release where there were toxic chemicals released from the facility and it kind of rained down on the neighborhood around as this, it's kind of a snow sort of that landed on their cars and Suncor basically responded like, it was nothing dangerous, we'll pay you to get your cars washed. But really what ultimately happened is they were fined. We're looking at what they were fined for that that release right and that money has been used by the health department to fund this kind of research by community on what happens when you live around these facilities. And so we have very preliminary research that we have also been talking to community about in meetings and delivering through Coldivando. But what's really encouraging is that we are able to collect these stories that people have been trying to tell for a very long time about the health impacts that they see, especially if they're living in households with young children or kids, a lot of asthma and other respiratory problems pretty consistent health problems related to things like nosebleeds and headaches and health problems that are often dismissed as being part of somebody's own individual lifestyles, right? Like what's your diet? What's your exercise like? What are what are the things that you're doing in terms of your individual exposures or choices, your genetics too, that might predispose you to these sorts of things? When people are experiencing this you know, in a radius around facilities like Suncor across the United States, right? And this is where they're connecting those kinds of health problems to exposures from the facility. So we are capturing those stories. We are also doing a photo voice component of the study where that means folks who live in community are taking pictures that capture what it's like to live around the facility and telling us narratives of what that photo represents to them. It gives us a really good visual representation of what that's like on a daily basis. And the goal really is to have this kind of holistic set of data 
that shows what air pollution, are, what kinds of air pollution are people being exposed to, what might be the health outcomes of that kind of exposure. And then on a sociological and environmental justice side of things, what does that mean for people's stress levels? What does it mean for their quality of life? What does it mean when they feel like they have to buy water every day to be able to drink water and take showers and baths and wash dishes safely? And these are things that we're seeing in places as we do interviews. So we'll have a lot more coming down the road from the study and keep an eye on Coldivando because they are doing amazing work, not just in this, but across many issues within the Commerce City community. And I feel lucky to be part of the study and part of telling those stories. And I think it's really important to capture because as we move to hopefully a new just transition towards different kinds of energy systems and ways to employ folks who work in those fields, I think it's really important to think proactively about what current facilities are doing and what that means for quality of life in our state. When, when we think of environmental injustices, we often think of these big recent events. We think about Flint. We think about the train crash in Ohio, those big events that, that you know, the, the Aaron Brockovich moments that mm-hmm. end up getting a lot of media attention. Mm-hmm. But what about some of the smaller ones that don't find their way uh, into the media spotlight? How do we make sure that we're helping fight those injustices? What I try to think about when I look at those situations, and I I end up as a sociologist who works in community and works in rural communities a lot, I'm often working in spaces where we might never hear those stories, right? So especially in terms of uranium exposure and uranium uh, nuclear-related accidents, right? The largest nuclear accident in the United States is around Church Rock in New Mexico, but because this happened around a Pueblo nation and, and Native communities, it we have never heard, most of, most of us have never heard of this, right? It's just one example of the ways in which a lot of these, what we call sacrifice zones, right? So spaces where there have been multiple hazardous land uses or dangerous, risky kind of activities cited there. Uh, a lot of folks will refer to those as sacrifice zones, right? Spaces just seen as, as well, we can just get rid of those. And while we were developing nuclear technology, Parts of the Western United States, especially parts that were populated by Native nations, if you look at Department of Defense memos, they will also refer to Mormon populations in those areas of southern Utah, for example, as being expendable, right? So this is kind of part of the history of environmental injustice is certain groups being seen by other groups in power as being invisible or expendable. And so that's a pattern throughout these cases of environmental injustice. As a sociologist, what I try to focus on is what's the through line? from these more sensationalized or the cases that we eventually focus on. And thank goodness the derailment in Ohio finally got some media attention, right? It took a little while. The through line with these communities is that they're embedded within a set of social structures that that doesn't counter environmental injustice. And one of the key reasons is that we see either a complete lack of regulation until the late 60s or early 70s in terms of industrial production, chemical production, plastics production, right? A lot of these industrial activities that led to contamination of places like Love Canal and Warren County, North Carolina, and where we think about the environmental justice movement as starting. And so paying attention to what rules are in place to protect the more than humans, to protect humans, to protect all humans equally. We want to look at that. And 
the way that I've started to study and understand this is that environmental regulations, like I said, weren't really strong in the U.S. until the late 60s and early 70s is when we kind of saw this massive uptick in popular social activism around environmental issues, not environmental justice per se, but seeing planet Earth for the first time, right? After moonwalks, the Cuyahoga River starting on fire, the Santa Barbara oil spill, all of these things that happened really kind of precipitated this big movement towards a suite of environmental regulations. And then by the early 70s, under the Nixon administration, the Environmental Protection Agency started. But what happened is by the 1980s, this is when neoliberal policies start to really take off in the United States. And neoliberalism is an ideology, but also a set of policy measures. So it can look different in different places. But it really refers to this focus on liberating markets. So making markets as free as possible. And we do that by focusing on private property rights as much as possible, privatizing resources like water as much as possible. I teach a lot of courses on looking at privatization of water and the injustice impacts of that. But then also getting rid of as many or rewriting rules and regulations as much as possible so that there are as few environmental and labor regulations in place as possible, because the goal is to be able to do business as freely as possible within that neoliberal kind of viewpoint. So what's connected these less visible spaces to these more visible spaces is that deregulation and that lack of environmental protection really it was just getting started in a place like the United States when under neoliberalism right if you look at the the budget of the EPA for example under the Reagan administration it was cut to such an extent that it didn't recover again until the late 1990s and then it kind of starts all over again with the next administration that tends to cut regulations right and this is a pattern across all political groups in the United States I should say, the major two parties in the United States since the 1980s. It's not just Republicans or Democrats. We see this pattern across. But it's really facilitated the environmental injustices that we see. Because even if there are environmental regulations on the books, for example, things have been re-regulated in the direction of often there aren't the budgets to enforce those regulations. So you can have all the rules on the books, but if you don't have people actually enforcing those rules, it doesn't matter if they're there. So more and more at the federal level and as individual states and even counties, regulators rely on corporate self-regulation. So an example in Colorado is that the, with unconventional oil and gas production, right? The 2005 Energy Policy Act essentially deregulated the industry even more than it already was so that it was exempt from about seven out of 15 environments, major federal environmental regulations. This included the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act. So when operators who wanted to do unconventional drilling, so who wanted to use vertical and horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, wanted to set up operations, they didn't have to follow those regulations at the federal level. Instead, they could go to individual states like Colorado or North Dakota, Texas or Pennsylvania, and they really just had to follow the regulations within that state, right? So control had been devolved. And states were often didn't have the budgets, didn't have the staff, didn't have the re the knowledge or regulations on the books to enforce anything related to that kind of production. So production could speed ahead of protection over environment and public health, for example. In Colorado, we have Last I checked, the numbers shift a little bit, but we have around 55,000 operational wells at the peak and around 24 inspectors for those 55,000 operational wells. So you might imagine, even if those inspectors were able to check multiple wells every day, I think the numbers are something like two and a half or three years, maybe even more to get to all those wells. So it, the system is set up to rely a lot on corporate self-regulation. And oil and gas is just one example I'm mentioning. 
This is the case across a lot of different industrial sectors. And so this is kind of that pattern of deregulation is what we can see kind of tying together those less visible accidents and spaces and cases of environmental injustice to the ones that end up being bigger. The Ohio train derailment, for example, is really related to a lot of different deregulation, including deregulation around trains carrying hazardous substances and notifications around that, but also length of trains. And their braking systems, right? And and how often they have to be inspected or if they have to be inspected. I'm di- I'm I'm giving that example because simple things, fairly simple things like rules and regulations being in place that we've kind of been socialized to demonize, right? Like oh, who wants rules and regulations, right? But they're there to protect multiple generations. They're there to protect other species. They're there to protect folks living in East Palestine, Ohio, from having to breathe toxic chemicals if a train derails. And that's the through line back to these other spaces that we don't hear about as much that are dealing with similar outcomes because of the lack of oversight and protections in place. It's not only that. There's a lot of other structural factors. But I give that example because if we can focus on how do we build systems that are more about distributive, regenerative approaches and having some protections in place so that the public trust can be met. We can offer future generations clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and bathe in and enjoy. That is the essence of the public trust and the role of the state in protecting those resources so that we have something to hand down and there's some intergenerational equity. And so my approach and the way I teach my students as well and talk about this through the Center for EJ is to think about what we know about those really visible sites is often what's also those patterns are being played out in those less visible sites. So if as organizers or community groups, we want to focus on how can we inform policymakers or how can we become part of a community organization like 350 Colorado that's moving in the direction of trying to uh, just have some accountability and some checks and balances on those, that's a way to start to address some of those less visible injustices that we might not even know the names of. You know, in the last few years, we've seen Colorado Governor Jared Polis signing the Environmental Justice Act in 2021, Mm -hmm. uh, President Biden's executive order signing of the Justice 40 initiative. Does it seem like the environmental justice movement is getting real traction now? Or is you kind of said earlier that we're in a zeitgeist moment. I'm hopeful, but I do think that we've already, we had kind of a zeitgeist moment in the early 90s, the first executive order under the Clinton administration for the environmental justice executive order. I forget the number off the top of my head, but that was, you know, also kind of seen as a zeitgeist moment for EJ. And then it, 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 it kind of ebbed and flowed. And, and, and so all of this is very encouraging if it helps meaningfully support and build sustainable relationships among all these different places that are EJ priority areas. But more importantly, and I'm just going to be really blunt here, I think that there are two parallel and diametrically opposed things going on. I really think that we have to examine the notion that we can green capitalism or we can take this very austere version of capitalism that we call neoliberalism, which pulls away our social safety nets, alienates us as individuals, deregulates, privatizes, and gets this consistent results of environmental injustice on many levels. Unless that system shifts drastically and is shifted by people, right, I fear that we're going to see the same results. No matter how much money or executive orders or state-level legislation we throw at the problem, if there's not a shift in the system in which it's all embedded, 
I think that we we kind of know the conclusion. And so that's why focusing on places and communities and organizations that are actually building fundamentally different systems that are not about privatizing wealth, that are not it, it, towards an uber elite, right, that are not about trying to extract as much profit in a short a period of time and who really cares about the repercussions for our kids or their kids. If those conventions don't change, then then I think all the EJ acts in the world are not really going to work because they're trying to thrive within a system that doesn't really match the the goals and those values. I'm incredibly inspired, though, by the sheer number of people that want something very different and are actively building those systems. And and it doesn't have to be this enormous life altering for you sort of thing, but it's it's that finding your passion and your joy and your skill set and where that fits in. And that's how we build collectives that are all we're all bringing our our little talent or skill or and that can change over time. And and I do think that that's the thing that will encouragingly that's the thing that's gotten Governor Polis and President Biden and Kamala Harris actually interested in environmental justice, right? Is people pushing and agitating and being persistent for decades and organizations persisting even longer than that. But you can only persist against this kind of hegemonic system for so long before we start to say, hey, let's pay attention to the water that we're swimming around in (laughs) and see if we can change that water so that it actually helps us swim a little better and a little more easily. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. That was Stephanie Malin, Associate Sociology Professor and co-founder of the Center for Environmental Justice. I'm your host, Stacey Nick, and this is The Audit, CSU's new podcast featuring conversations with faculty about everything from research to current events. 